X-Ray. And welcome to the Beard Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Uh, welcome back to the studios of X-Ray FM here in the Falcon Art Building in beautiful North Portland. How are you? Um, well, I've actually been better. We might come to that later. Uh, yeah, follow us on your social media. We'll know. Yeah. That you're... Going through a little... Yeah. More tales of Patrick and Jeff's physical collapse. <laughs> you, a, you came I, in in a boot and I've got my own weird issues. So, Yes, I have a broken ankle. You have weird stuff going on. Yeah. It turns out we're old. We're old I think and this is gonna be, are given out. I think this is going to be a common theme yeah. now for the rest of life. Probably not so interesting for other people, but otherwise I'm good. Uh, it's a glorious day outside. I know. When we recorded last, I thought by the time we get in the, the studio next time, it'll be full on... Oregon, November, pouring rain, gross. Yeah. But no. I'm trying to get into the winter beer season, but I can't really get into winter beer season when it's 60 degrees, beautiful sunshine. Although I have to say, this has been one of the most spectacular falls we've had. Yes. It's been dry, crisp. It's hard. I'm so conflicted about climate change. (laughs) You got got to take the good with the bad. That's right. It's mostly good, but. uh, So, well, right now it is. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So with me, as always, this is the Beer Vana Podcast. Welcome back. With me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible and The Widmer Way. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics, which will be relevant to this today's podcast uh, <laughs> at Oregon State University. Go Beeves. Uh Yes, go Beeves. I guess. I think they lost yeah. lately, but they're actually doing not terrible, so that's good. Go beefs. Uh, across from us uh, today is uh, Miranda Selinger, stepping in for producer Chase Bross. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Miranda. <laughs> uh, okay, before we, we get... We wave. <laughs> so everyone in podcast land knows that we're waving. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, speaking of old producers, we've we've had dispatches from uh, Will Romy. Yeah, it's true. He's out there malting. Out in there malting. We're learning all about malting from him. It's fascinating. Yeah. Turns out it's a lot of hard physical labor. Yeah, I knew that. He sounds delighted though. Yeah, he does. He's a young strapping guy, so it's all right. Yeah, good for him. I'd probably die after one day. Yeah, we both would, as we've, <laughs> as we've already assessed. We can't even make it through without doing hard labor. Anyway, so Will, if you're out there, thanks for sending in the updates. Uh, best of luck to you, and uh, hopefully we'll get you on the pod soon talking about malting. That's right. All right, so before we get started, we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Podcast. You can find them in Hood River, Oregon, and at freembeer.com. That's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com. Indeed. And if you do find them in Hood River, I suspect you will have a glorious hour-long drive out the gorge if you're coming from Portland. Uh, if you do it soon, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, true. You got to get out there. Yeah, the leaves are falling quickly, so yeah. you got to gotta hurry up. They are. But, <laughs> but, but they're a, a golden hue baked by the sun and the, the cooler, because we're having quite nice cold temperatures. The difficult... Uh, weather here is it'll get up to like 50 and it'll get down to 40. So not crisp enough to get that really blazing color. Yeah. Uh, but we're getting that now because it is getting cold at night. So beautiful. Yeah. Speaking of Freem beer, this is entirely accidental. This was not something they sent me, but uh, they make something, uh, they make a Keller beer, which I think I've mentioned before on the pod. Yeah. Many times. But uh, Have I? Yeah. It turns out I kind of like it. Yeah. I but I think do. it's, a, but I was going to say, because it was like <laughs> perfect for me, it's like a perfect fall beer. I don't know why. Just very malty and, uh, but um, not heavy. Yeah. No. Well, the time that I was in Bavaria was the fall. So I associate it with that too. They're yeah. doing their uh, Bach beer on stitch in uh, Franconia right now, which is when every brewery rolls out there, they have a Bach beer for fall. 
And mm. uh, this is the time they're doing it. It's very, very wonderful time of year. Yeah, I was going to say, there's like Oktoberfest and Bach and, and beers that may be more fallish. Yeah. But for me, Keller beer was lovely. There you go. All right. Uh, My time to do Wait the a minute. Intro. Hold on. That's right. <laughs> You're rocking my world. Jeff reads, reads on, our, uh, on our script. We're, we're, uh, you never read this. What are you talking about? I'm... You're the you're the show today, my friend. Oh, I think I'm being phased out. No, no, no. You're the show. You're you're the star. I'm the I'm the sidekick now. All right, sidekick. giving you the lead in. Go ahead. See, All right, here's see how good you're. Yeah. You are at sidekickishness. <laughs> uh, so you may have seen some of the news coming out of Portland over the past year. Ten sales or closures in the past year alone, uh, including four in what I've started to call Black October, uh, with seventy odd breweries the highest consumption of local beer nationwide, and one of the most established craft cultures, Portland is regularly seen as a vision of the future. And that makes these closures seem particularly worrying. But should they? In today's episode, we're going to turn to our bureonomist and diagnose just what exactly this all means. See, you're the show. Uh, that's good. Uh, and this is why you're the talent. Black October. That's amazing. Like, how'd you come up with that? I know, right? That's, <laughs> that's... I was just... Uh, just invented that uh, but yeah no president. No, but i do think the portland market is kind of a canary in the coal mine i do think that it's a portent for the future in a lot of other markets so yeah we'll talk about it all right we'll talk about that but first we have the news as a follow-up to news we've reported recently there was some closure in the founder's racial discrimination lawsuit. You might recall that during depositions in the case, a founder's manager claimed not to be able to see race. A transcript of his claims leaked to the press caused widespread outrage when it was reported. Days later, the company's diversity and inclusion director, uh, Gracie Harkema, announced her departure in a scathing letter. Well, shortly after these events, founders settled with Tracy Evans, who brought the lawsuit. Terms were not disclosed. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Maybe they got a little too hot and uh, they need to do that to go away. And I, I happened to catch something about a Detroit tasting room, I think, where they're going to donate all their profits for a year. Yeah. I mean, it's some... still closed and they weren't sure when it was going to open. And I don't know what's going on with that whole mess. Yeah. So they're still in, in serious, uh, 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 what's the term I'm looking for? Um, damage control. Yeah. Mode? Thank you. Exactly. Damage control. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Yes. And, uh, for my money, that 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 damn that, I hope that damage continues for a while. They behaved very badly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, the second item in hop news: Stan Hieronymus reported on a potentially important new technique, reusing hops, particularly those used in dry hopping. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, modern hoppy ales utilize historically unprecedented amounts of hops in fermentation and conditioning vessels, and brewers and researchers have been experimenting on reusing them. In one technique, the yeast and hops remain in the fermentation vessel and are used to both ferment and flavor a second batch of wort. And the initial results have been promising. Huh. Kind of a different take on a little beer. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, <clears throat> you, your wort isn't the little part, but your, right. the hop character, you get a, you get a lesser amount, but apparently the quality is still quite nice. There's a lot of, uh, um, you know, the, the oils and flavor compounds. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say you'd think the alpha acids still stick around if you use them for dry hopping. Yeah. Or do they get broken down? That is a fascinating question, mm -hmm. which was not addressed. So this was in Stan Hieronymus's, uh, uh, newsletter called hop queries, which I, right. again, I encourage everybody to 
subscribe to. There's always something amazing in there. Huh. Um, yeah. So, it's yeah. so it sounds like, I mean, m my question, I guess, is whether you can take a whole bunch of the hops you've used to dry hop and then stick them in a boil and get the alpha acids out and get some bittering components. Well, this is after the boil. So this goes, you, you leave it in the fermentation vessel. Right. What I'm saying, I know that that's what we, that we're talking about here. I'm wondering if there's an alternative use. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, the, yeah, the alpha acids. But it makes a lot of sense, right? This is, the hops are expensive. Right. And if you can find more uses for them, then, uh, it'll make it less expensive. Yeah. It was one of those things that Stan mentioned in his, uh, newsletter that wouldn't have occurred to brewers of old because it was not a substantial cost. Right. You know, overall. Uh, well, yeah. And I imagine, it, I mean, the ones used in the boil are pretty spent. I don't think there's a whole lot right. you can get out of them. But since we're doing so much dry hopping now, so much on the cold side that, yeah, you'd expect there's still a lot of components there that. Are potentially useful yeah interesting yeah that is interesting that's fascinating yeah but that's one of the hey, that's one of the few, few news items that uh are really it's actually interesting i'm trying to dig deep man yeah good for you i'm looking for stuff and i think in next week's uh podcast uh possibly recorded soon uh <laughs> <laughs> there's another interesting news item there that's a little bit off the beaten path so i'm trying to trying to mix it up here all right sounds good all right should we turn to the topic of the day yes let's talk about the bureaucalypse yeah uh, in portland yeah um i'm gonna you, you, we, we talked beforehand and you so one 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 thing to just say is that there are a lot of you know we, we mentioned that 10 breweries have closed in the past uh, year uh have been 10 breweries brewery pubs or have been closed or uh have been purchased i guess is to encompass all the the different things and yeah. that's a, that's a lot uh it's a lot of yeah so People have been asking, you know, how do we interpret that? What does this mean? Yeah, and of course, there's no one single narrative. I mean, every every closure has its own, you know, mini narrative. So what I decided, I don't want to try and pretend I know the answer to <laughs> all the all the uh, closings. But what I want to do is sort of go over what I consider sort of the main economic forces uh, that affect brewers and breweries. Um, and talk about sort of what they mean in this modern world and how they've evolved, especially with the onset of craft beer. And even, I would say, over the last 10 years of craft beer, uh, these forces have become even more extreme. Um, so that's my uh, my proposal for our yeah. for our podcast today. Give us some, give us some uh, frames to interpret this stuff with. So why don't we set up, why don't we start by just setting up what, what the beerocalypse looks like in Portland these days. Um, so this is the list of recent closures, probably not comprehensive. <laughs> these are the ones that we... Yeah, our we, old brains could remember. Yeah, so in late 2017, the Commons Brewery closed. Uh, Amnesia, which had left its Mississippi location, also closed its Vancouver location. Uh, Alameda in 2018. Uh, October of 2018. Uh, October of 2018. Portland Brewing's Restaurant and Pub closed in November of 2018. In January of 2019, the Widmer closed their pub. Uh, in February of 2019, Bridgeport and Burnside both ceased operations, uh, the brewing boat, uh, brewing companies. In May 2019, Columbia River closed, and then in October 2019, as you as you described, Black October saw the closures of Rock Bottom, Coalition, Lompoc, and Laurelwood. Yeah, Laurelwood was sold, not closed, but that's true. Laurelwood, yeah, I should I should. Although although one of the pubs was closed, so I guess it was a closure and a sale. It's a closure and a sale, but the original pub. Well, not actually, but anyway, the main pub, on right. San, the, current main pub. Uh, the current main pub on Sandy uh, will maintain uh, its brew pub status. So Laurelwood will live on, but the brand has been sold. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, so that's that's kind of the the roundup. There's also um, uh, a cidery in there we could throw in that's closing soon, and um, so yeah. And there were there have also been we haven't talked about this at all, but just pubs and tap rooms not associated with breweries. Quite a bit of churn there too, and I think Ciderite you alluded to is closed. Uh, just closed this weekend, and yep. I believe it was not the only cidery to close this year. So yeah, a lot going on. Right. Uh, so that's the, <laughs> that's the background, uh, the backdrop, uh, at the same time, and we don't have this, but we could probably give you a list twice the size of recent openings. Uh, in fact, uh, I was just driving by, uh, Simon's here hanging out. Simon, do you remember the brewery we, the sign for the new brewery we drove by? Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I keep riding around Portland. We were on our bikes, we're riding around Portland and, and. Yeah, somewhere near Montgomery Park. Anyway. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, well, so that's the thing about being in Portland. All of a sudden, you know, you turn your head and there's a new brewery popping up. Yeah, my guess is uh, brewery openings will continue to outpace closures this year mm-hmm. uh, once you look at it. I mean, it, the capacity will have declined because those little breweries won't have the same capacity as these closed breweries, but, right. but still. Um, All right, that's actually a perfect comment to start my little ex- exploration into e- economics of brewing. I'm, a, I'm an able sidekick, my friend. <laughs> So um, some of these themes, and many of these themes we've talked about uh, in past pods, and so uh, a lot of this won't be new, but I think the trends um, are getting more extreme. So I think of the two big forces in craft brewing are the following. The first is one that's been around forever. It's just pure physics. It's economies of scale. Uh, economies of scale just means that it becomes cheaper to brew a barrel of beer the bigger uh, you are. Right. And that uh, is... Uh, partly a, a function of pure physics. So if you have a brew house and conditioning tanks, uh, I think we've mentioned this before, the cube squared rule. So if you square the surface area of the vessels, you cube the volume therein. Mm-hmm. So it becomes, uh, in terms of equipment cost, becomes cheaper to brew uh, on bigger vessels. In terms of storage, it becomes easier to uh, to store, cheaper to store in bigger vessels and, and so on and so forth. And labor's a big one. Uh, and then, yep. Yeah, and then the other, uh, aspect is the automation labor. As you mentioned, uh, you need uh, fewer people per barrel to operate a large brewery than you do. Uh, I use my brother's, uh, example of going from summit brewing in, in, uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I think actually St. Paul, oh God, I can't remember which side, uh, <laughs> uh, where he sat behind a computer playing co- crosswords, uh, all night, like the one, one guy on shift as, Billions of gallons of beer, that's an exaggeration, obviously, got brewed. Uh, and then um, uh, going to a small uh, startup brewery in, in Denver and where he was like the whole running everything all himself and making little five-barrel batches. Right. So anyway, uh, and then there's also other things like uh, packaging, distribution, uh, so on and so forth. So there are a lot of economies of scale in, in beer. And for a long time, that was the main force. Uh, so uh, we got the sort of big three breweries um, from the what 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, making essentially the same beer and selling the heck out of it, and basically trying to be as cheap as possible while maintaining sort of quality and and, and consistency. Uh, what Kraft did was teach consumers that beer didn't have to be the same, and started up this sort of desire for new and different flavors that people didn't even know. Uh, well, I shouldn't 
be so extreme, but the the, the average consumer probably didn't understand uh, was available in beer. And so they created this sort of demand for novelty. Mm-hmm. And novelty is kind of in direct opposition to economies of scale in a few ways, I think. Uh, novelty just means new flavors, new smells, new appearance, the kinds of things that craft beer have taught consumers is possible, like an amazing array of flavors and experiences you can have. Um, beer isn't just one thing. Uh, so what does novelty do? Well, there's a few things. First, we talk about the novelty premium, which means that people are willing to pay more to experience these new uh, beers to have this novelty experience. So no longer is being the lowest price beer the way to win the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you've got this competing uh, novelty um, uh, force. Uh, the other thing is that uh, smaller brewers uh, who may have a cost disadvantage often have an advantage in novelty because they're much more nimble, much more able to to follow trends, to try new beers. Uh, if you imagine a big giant like Budweiser has to ship beer all over the world, but let's just stick to the United States and say, you know, they're they're selling at a scale that's uh, um, uh, just astronomical, and so to come up with a new beer and then try to sell it through all its distribution outputs is a really difficult thing. You have to put marketing budget into it. You have to take time. These are the kinds of things that at that scale just don't work very well. Right, and risky. And risky. Yeah, so I remember years ago, I've told this story a couple times on the pod, but uh, Jack Joyce, the founder of Rogue Brewing, uh, I took a group of Oregon State students out to the brewery there, and uh, we sort of had gotten into the discussion. He said, look, the, the macro brewers could brew just as good an IPA as any one of us, uh, and they could probably do it uh, uh, with an extreme amount of quality control and consistency, but uh, the brewers can't get the marketing people to get behind it and the accountants won't get behind it because, you know, it doesn't pencil out. Like it's not going to sell, uh, you know, a billion barrels next year. Or something. Um, yeah. And it's also the case that, um, these two, these two trends kind of cut against each other, right? Cause the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, it, it, they're really in, in some ways different markets because the people who are drinking the mass market products are drinking it, uh, in bottles and cans at home. Uh, and they're, you know, tend to be more session drinkers. They're drinking in larger multiples, and it's a different product. So even if sure. you could scale up your IPA, it's not it's not certain you could find a, a mass market for, you know, something that would would support having made that transition. Right. And so this is where I sort of move the discussion into just the craft beer realm, and then think about sort of the 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 craft brewers that have gotten big versus the sort of new group of craft brewers who are all who are mostly quite small. Uh, you start running into these same same trend. So back, you know, only what, 20 years ago, you would make an IPA and that would be eight, 75, 80, 85% of your sales. Right. And so the thought at the time I'm sure was, look, if we can keep making this great IPA, which everybody loves, uh, and we can scale up, we'll be able to sell it even cheaper and we can capture even more of the market. Right. Right. So that I think was the, the sort of the next step in the evolution of craft beer is that people were still sort of stuck on a few styles. And, the, and novelty had kicked in, but not to the extent to which we see now. And so growing big made a lot of sense. Uh, and, and a whole generation of breweries were founded on that. The Boston Beers and Sierra Nevadas and uh, New Belgiums. Widmer, yeah. All Deschutes, these, yeah. Deschutes, these kinds of what we now would, I don't know, legacy craft brewers? How, <laughs> how do we want to call them? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but the novelty uh, aspect of craft brewing uh, never stopped. Uh, brewers got better. Brewers started exploring more and more styles. 
uh, consumers got exposed to even more and more styles. Uh, and so this novelty um, premium and this novelty desire has become like pretty extreme. Uh, and so now you have this uh, uh, conundrum, I think, if you're a brewer, that uh, you know that you can, you, you know, you, you're trying to compete. You, you can't ignore price. You got to compete on price, but you always have to sort of be thinking about the next thing, the next kind of beer, the next trend. Uh, and so these two forces are very, I think I, if I were a, a brewer, I would find them or a, a, a brewery owner, I would find them very perplexing. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause uh, you know, I want to, I want to grow to, to try and scale up business. Obviously that helps my bottom line, uh, helps my price. Uh, but at the same time, I need to always make sure I'm sort of on the cutting edge and uh, creating this buzz in the marketplace. And it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, so I think what we've seen in some of these closures in, in Portland is a bit of that uh, uh, old craft beer uh, formula not translating to new craft beer formula, which is now if you're the, if you're the um, uh, Widmer or even the sort of Lompoc and Laurelwood, you know, you had some of these flagship beers that for a long time you could sort of ride on. Uh, and people don't necessarily want those anymore. They want these new experiences and you might not have that sort of nimbleness to, uh, to meet them there. Or even if you do, uh, you just don't have a fresh name. Right. Right. You just don't have that sort of buzz. Right. Uh, so that's, uh, so that's uh, a difficult uh, uh, challenge. Yeah. And I think it's instructive that all the breweries that we talked about uh, that closed with, I think, the exception of the Commons, which which was not brand new, uh, were the youngest one was nine years old. So that really goes to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and that's so. Uh, well, let's let's move on. We'll, we'll we'll circle back to a lot of these same themes. So the next thing that I think is really an important aspect in in craft beer is this idea that beer is uh, what we call a class of goods that it's, uh, we call experience goods. And the key with experience goods is you don't know how much you like them until you actually purchase and try it. Uh, unlike, I don't know, uh, you can go down to a car dealership and, and jump in a car and you can feel all the things and you can drive it around and you take it for a test drive. And so before you buy it, you might have a really good idea of what it is you're buying. Uh, in beer, not so much. Uh, a lot of these uh, uh, beers people haven't tried before because of the novelty aspect, there's all these new beers coming out. You might have known a brewery and might trust the brewery, but this is the kind of thing. So if if you're selling an experience good, there's a lot of ways in which you can try and signal the quality of your good or, or how you have to approach the marketplace. So things like the way you package, uh, uh, you know, if you want, if you've got this like uh, barrel aged beer, you can put it in a bottle and have a cork in a cage on the top, and right, mm -hmm. and, and that's just a signal of what the type of beer is for the consumer. Because you, if you've got a hazy IPA, you put it in a can with a really colorful geometric uh, pattern <laughs> on the label. Exactly. There you go. So these are the signals you're sending to the marketplace, um, uh, and so the the labeling is important, packaging important, price can also be a signal. And so we've talked to a number of brewers who don't want to uh, uh, lower the price of their product too much uh, because they're worried that people will take that as a signal that what they're selling isn't a quality product. Right. Uh, and this is different. Um, I think maybe, boy, time flies, right? Maybe 10 to 15 years ago, uh, we went down to sort of a bigger brewer and they were excited about being able to sell their IPA at a slightly lower price point. 
like a competitive price point. Right, which is sort of the thing you expect. Yeah. You know, like that's you compete on price and you if you beat them by um, 50 cents, uh, yeah. six pack, then you yeah. know, that gives you a competitive advantage. Right, this was the paradigm 10 years ago, right? I have this IPA, it's 75% of my sales, people love it. So I can go bigger and I can even lower the price and down an extra 50 cents, right? And I can undercut other people's IPA and I'm going to be sweet. It doesn't work anymore. Um, yeah, and uh, Simon was even mentioning this earlier that uh, a couple of the, the most popular breweries right now in Portland, the, the busiest breweries are Modern Times and Great Notion, and they both have very expensive beer. Right. So they, they've gone the other way. They, you know, they're, they're competing. They've created a separate tier for themselves and uh, are pri- priced to meet that same tier. Yeah, so I think that's just another example of the novelty premium, right? Uh, well, both the novelty premium and sort of the signal of quality. So. Yeah, Simon says the exclusivity. Oh, we'll get to that. Very good. See, Simon's already anticipating my economics. <laughs> well, we would expect. In so. fact, in fact, not only that, but it's my next one too. <laughs> uh, so Simon's so, also a good sidekick. So the fact that it, yeah, so the fact that it's uh, an experience good uh, makes it even more complicated, right? I mean, it's it's not just enough to brew great beer, but you have to be able to signal that somehow and, and sort of catch the eye of the consumer. Uh, all, all of this suggests how fickle this business is and how easy it is to, uh, to get uh, lost in the marketplace, uh, I suppose. Uh, what Simon was talking about, we would call maybe a, a status good. Uh, status goods are goods that uh, increase in value the more uh, sort of other people crave them. So they, they, they confer a status. You could think of some of the classic ones might be like a Rolex watch or something. Sure. So not only is it a fine instrument of time telling and made of exclusive materials like gold and whatever. But just the fact that you have it uh, confers upon you a status that that's valuable, right? right. So you can charge even more for a Rolex because of the status that's... Uh, so taking that down to beer, maybe not a huge um, uh, force, I suppose, um, but you know, you think about the lines for treehouse beers and Pliny the Elder, people were climbing clamoring for years ago and heady topper was another one that people would sit in line for and and it conferred a status if you if you able to get it and consume it then you were sort of cemented as a real beer geek yeah and it's interesting because there's the opposite of that right where you're 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 day classe or something you're the you have the opposite of status you're considered like an old stodgy product and and it seems like some of the breweries that we've seen go out of business have gotten behind that stat- they, they're the opposite of status goods whatever that's called yeah well that what well, i'd say is that you you can't uh it's very hard to remain a status good for a long time i mean a rolex in in, in, a, in a less fluid industry than right. you can stand you can uh you can be there but uh in an industry like beer there's always going to be some new person coming up that gets the buzz right so you can only ride this sort of status good status for so long yeah uh and maybe right now modern times and and great notion sort of have that kind of that status right now and then get away with higher prices and so what happens this is a good example uh, and I don't mean to single out these, and I don't think there's any <laughs> any reason to suspect they won't be around for a long time. But just think about that. One, what, what happens when you're no longer the buzz or you don't have that status anymore? So what do you do? Do you try to lower price? Do you try to try out new beers? How do you regain that sort of prominence in the marketplace? Uh, it makes it very difficult. Yeah, and we, we saw this with uh, uh, not an Oregon brewery, but uh, when the California brewery, uh, Ballast Point. Right. that had extremely high prices. And then uh, that that kind of all was great while things were great. But then when volume started to stop, then they had to 
lower their prices and that kind of seemed to create this cascading sense of, you know, now now it's really not valuable. Now it's more of a supermarket product. And yeah. So I guess what to, to sort of wrap it up just to be make sure I'm being clear, it's like there's a novelty premium, sure, that happens in general. But then you, there's even a higher premium you can get if you're a real status good. So I think Palace Point is a, a perfect example of that. It was about the most expensive beer in the marketplace. Crazy expensive, yeah. Right? And people are only willing to spend that much beer if they really think there's something particularly special or if they confer a particular status on the drinker themselves. Uh, and so that's really hard to sustain. Right. Uh, novelty premium might be a little easier to sustain if you can keep coming out with new beers. But maintaining your status as a status good is, is hard. Yeah, I was thinking about... Uh, uh, Breakside is a brewery that's uh, roughly the same age as some of the younger ones that failed. And it continues to have the um, impression in the marketplace that it's a new brewery that is, uh, innov- you know, creating, not innovative, but um, it, it's sort of leading uh, trends. Uh, so it, it, it they seem you can to do it for a while, but yeah, it's hard. yeah they, but like 10 years is one thing, 30 might be another. I don't know. Uh, again, I don't know anything of the ins and outs of their business in particular, but uh, I would point to it as one of those breweries that's sort of riding this knife edge really, really well, very uh-huh. cleverly, right? So they're not, uh, they're reasonably competitive on price. In other words, they're not, they're not a super premium, um, but they, they have consistent quality and they keep sort of being able to hit the trends pretty well, yeah. uh, maintain a, 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 a certain buzz around their brand. Uh, so I think that they're sort of navigating this very difficult marketplace about as good as you, as you can, at least from outside appearances. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. There's no way to stop the force of time. So you're eventually going to be a 10-year-old brewery, best case scenario, and then you got to right. figure out how to do this knife edge, as you call it. Yeah, and we've we've had a number of uh, brewers recently talking about how they don't want to grow past like 20,000 to 30,000 right. barrels a year. Like that's kind of a sweet spot. Right. Uh, and I think that speaks to a lot of this stuff. You can stay nimble. Uh, you're not over committing to having to flog too much beer. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a size that sort of maybe is right for this current marketplace. Yeah. I don't know what break side sells. Do you know? I think they're in that, uh, 25,000 range, yeah. 20, 25,000. Um, I, I'm not sure how much they sell outside of Oregon. I think they sold 20,000 in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, but I, I could, I don't know. I don't have those figures right in front of me. So that's maybe the Goldilocks zone of, of craft beer right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah at, least, at least here. I don't know. You, you, maybe. Can be, you can be reasonably competitive in price. You can still be nimble. And as long as you have the quality right, then uh, it's possible to, uh, to maintain that. Are okay. you about to introduce a new topic? Yeah. Well, before we go any further, okay. um, we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring the Beer Mona podcast. Freem has a new slate of beers coming out soon, including Barrel Aged Saison 3, a fresh farmhouse ale brewed uh, in Sauvignon Blanc barrels for just under a year. The result is floral, funky, dry, and effervescent, full of geranium, geranium and grape aromas that melt into notes of pineapple and minerality. And Export Lager, a testament to balance in the brewing art. Aromas of lightly toasted bread, wildflowers, and a hint of white grape converge in this cross between a Hellas and a Pilsner. Each sip balances present pleasant malt sweetness with floral hops and a restrained bitterness. Cream beer. Now I know. Yeah, now I know what you're, what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm just deep in the deep in the econ weeds here. You, you're always the one who points out. Uh, it keeps keep. It's this. I, I see. We're, we're, it's nice to switch up roles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Freem is another example of a brewery that's in that Goldilocks zone, and another brewery that's mentioned that I think they're pretty comfortable with their size right now. Yeah. Uh, okay, so a few other things um, to talk about, uh, and then 
some more fun stuff. Uh, one is just the sort of the standard access to market. So brewing is complicated because um, unless you have your own tap room or uh, brew pub, uh, you have to access market through distributors generally, or even if you don't, you still have limited shelf space, tap handles, and so on. And so this sort of, I think, just basically exacerbates this whole novelty, experience good, status good stuff, which is, uh, you know, people, the, the retailers are concerned with one and only one thing, what sells, what moves off the shelf. Sure. Right. And so trying to break in, uh, if you're a new brewer or if you're an established brewer known for one thing, trying to break in with something else is really difficult because you don't necessarily find an audience right away. Um, and uh, you have to convince the retailers or your distributor to flog your your beer, uh, and so that creates sort of I think even more pressure on some of these um, some of these trends. Yeah. So it's a it's a complicated market to to navigate. Um, uh, and one 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 thing I wrote down here is how do you move from one big hit to a new beer if you get known for having this great you know new hazy IPA like how do you then get yourself uh, uh, known for something different and so you don't get stuck in that um in that in that niche yeah uh okay so then i want to sort of come to the next part which is so all of these forces are difficult all of these forces create uh, enormous pressure especially on established brewers uh and we're starting to see some of those brewers fail um and those uh that kind of that kind of uh, uh pressure is bad i suppose if you're a brewer it's it's complicated and difficult and uh, and frustrating to deal with uh, but i would suggest that all of this stuff in some ways is is quite good for consumers and we call this process of of old breweries sort of folding and uh and going by the way and new breweries coming in and taking their place creative destruction mm -hmm. and it's generally seen as a positive aspect of of an economy yeah like this is a, a healthy a healthy mature market is one in which uh, newcomers will come and disrupt and push out old uh, established in, uh, businesses in an industry uh, because they come along with something better. Uh, and so <clears throat> you might think, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good, a good, a good modern example, but you know, Apple versus IBM or yeah, something like that. Yeah, the tech industry seems right. like it has a lot of these examples. So a lot of this stuff comes from the tech industry, this idea of creative destruction, you become something better. I think disru disruption is this tech industry term. Uh, uh, but I think it's also true for, for craft beer. Um, there's a lot of, uh, creative destruction. There's a lot of breweries that came along at a time, um, uh, when brewing techniques were a little bit different, when consumer tastes were a bit different and new, new brewers can come along and, and don't have, don't, aren't saddled with that reputation, right? Aren't saddled with a past or a history. They can just come along with the newest, latest. Um, and, uh, I think that the quality of, um, brewing has increased dramatically. I think that the, the new brewers that are brewing, the new breweries that are brewing tend to, tend to hit, uh, have a quality that's, um, that's, uh, quite a bit higher than, um, I'm not, uh, not, not the qual the current quality of established brewers, but the quality of the brewing that happened 20, right. 20 years ago. Right. right. We're making better beer now than we were in the mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, um, there's a lot of, uh, pressure. So um, what's better in beer? It's better quality, I think, better in, more innovation, uh, more efficiency, uh, more new, new techniques, uh, new techniques using hops, uh, the way that IPAs have evolved, uh, more variety. Uh, 
think about the kinds of beers that you'll see on the shelf now versus 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to be sort of a pale and an IPA and maybe a brown ale, <laughs> right? Right. And now you have everything from Belgian beers, German beers, Czech beers, uh, English style beers, American IPAs, hazy IPAs, things like that. So, uh, so all this stuff is, I think, through this process of creative destruction, we've come to this uh, amazing moment in craft beer right now where there's excellent quality, excellent variety, uh, the um, the range of fantastic, exceptional, exceptionally good beers uh, you can uh, try across a whole range of styles is is unprecedented. So I think this process of creative destruction from the from the sort of uh, perspective of a consumer is fantastic. You may lament the passing of your old favorite brewery, but there's five new great breweries in their place. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, as we were thinking about this topic. Uh, I was reminded, I started writing beer about beer uh, in 98, I think, 97, 98. And that was right at the moment that we saw the first wave happen. And there was a lot of creative destruction then. It was interesting to think about the things that are confronting the, the industry now versus then. Right. Um, I thought of, uh, right now, uh, seltzers are a really big deal. And in the mid, mid to late 1990s, things called Alcopops. <laughs> or uh, um, alternatives, as they were calling them. Were, Zima. Were, yeah, Zima came out in 1994. <laughs> Smirnoff Ice and Mike's Hard Lemonade came out in 99. I think there were a couple of others between there that I couldn't remember or find. Right. So that was challenging the, the industry from one side. The industry itself had its own kind of uh, infatuation with a lot of sweetness. There, mm-hmm. were, there were fruit ales then, and they were a lot of breweries were getting set up just to sell, kind of cash in on the fruit ale trend. Right. Uh, we saw one, uh, one brewery called Norwester, which was a, set up entirely to capitalize on fruit and wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we saw all these failures in the mid-1990s. There was a brewery called Star. It failed. Norwester failed and was purchased by Saxer, which was a great lager brewery, mm-hmm. although they had uh, had started to sell a beer that was kind of a debased thing called lemon lager. <laughs> um, and then they failed and were purchased by Portland Brewing, and it kind of uh, fatally wounded Portland and it never came back. Henry Weinhardt's, the great brewery downtown, which uh-huh. was a a large uh, regional industrial brewery. They collapsed. Full Sail almost collapsed. Almost got bought by VJ Malia, an Indian uh, magnate, yeah. beer magnate. Um, and then that was also the time when uh, the first of the AB purchases happened. So right. AB bought into Widmer. Right. So you saw all this really similar kind of, the, the resonances are almost, uh, the parallels are just so close. It was really shocking to me to think about uh all of the ways in which that market was so similar to this market. And, yeah. And, you know, of course, Portland came out of that era. Even better than before. Even better than before, to, to your point. And yeah. uh, stronger and, and our beer was better and our, our breweries were smarter and more lithe and ready to go. Yeah. I think that one of the things you can sort of see is this general contraction in the size of breweries. And that is directly related to my tension between this economies of scale versus novelty. So novelty has become more and more and more important. Uh, sort of variety and nimbleness of brewers have become more and more and more important. And as a result, you've seen this the size of the sort of most successful brewers uh, decline, decline, decline. So, you know, you might, uh, uh, I don't know that we'll see another Sierra Nevada in the future. Right. Um, and, and, you know, they're holding on, kudos to them, uh, because they're being able to sort of maintain enough novelty to, uh, uh, to capture the, uh, the attention of the marketplace. But it's a tough... It's a, it's a tough go. I would say one thing that the the difference might be um, uh, in that wave of um, 
of shakeouts is, you know, that, that there was novelty, but that might have been more about the novelty of the businesses. And now it might be more about the novelty of the beers. I'm not sure. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, now, now you're really sort of, I think that the, the marketplace has matured so much that people are chasing the actual beers themselves and not just sort of this brewery over that brewery, uh, which makes it even more the, the, the difficulty as a brewer to try and capture that zeitgeist is even harder. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a big opinion about that. Uh, I do think that, you know, the market is so much more concentrated now that the yeah. risk is so much higher than it was then. Yeah. Uh, there's just there's just so many breweries now that it's it's much more challenging in that regard. Yeah, I mean, there was a time in Portland where you could open a brewery and you'd find an audience mm-hmm. and you'd capture that audience for a while. You'd have a you'd have a pretty good run with an audience, even if you had sort of mediocre beer. Right. Uh, and no longer that audience is sophisticated. Uh, that audience is uh, fickle, and that audience um, uh, isn't going to last if if they're not if you're not providing what what they what they're looking for. So, it's a difficult. Uh, a very difficult business to break into now. And I've, I've used this analogy a number of times. I think it's ever more apt, which is that uh, craft brewing has become much, much more like a uh, restaurant business. Mm-hmm. It's hyper-local. It's based on current tastes. It's hard to, to, to maintain an audience for your restaurant for a long time. And the restaurant industry sort of evolved. Like there's serial restaurateurs who will open one restaurant and, you know, five to 10 years later, it'll close and open up something else. It's just sort of the, the way of the restaurant business. It's very, it's, it, uh, I think, I'd be interested actually to know whether that's true in restaurants. Is it, uh, uh, is it become, is there even more churn in restaurants now than there was in the 1950s and 60s? I suspect there might be as well. I bet there is because the churn uh, in terms of, uh, the novelty churn is greater now. You know, you in, in the 1950s, you could open an Italian-American restaurant and right. it would be- Or a steakhouse. Or yeah. steakhouse. And these things would be popular for decades. Right. Uh, but now if you open, uh, you know, I mean, here in Portland, uh, one of the more popular and kind of cutting edge restaurants is uh, Le Pigeon. Mm-hmm. And that a little uh, side business of, of cheaper, so not quite as- uh, expensive called little bird and little bird just closed and it was the talk of the town for a long time and it's just hard to keep on that that razor edge that you talked about yeah and i don't know too much about the restaurant business but i but i've been i'm i'm old enough to remember that uh you know there was a time when uh sort of variety might mean like the thai restaurant and a few other like ethnic restaurants and now you know in this age of of globalization and information uh, spreading around that uh, you can just about find almost any cuisine yeah. from all over the world you want and there's all kinds of fusion cuisines and so people are out there looking for again for new variety new experiences different flavors it sounds very much like craft brewing right you you identified this years ago and i i didn't agree with you then but it seems like a perfect <laughs> analogy now uh okay so you know it it used to be, I would say, in Portland, it used to be that you could open a brewery, you'd have an audience, they would be with you for a while, uh, and that might have bred a bit of complacency. And one of the nice things about creative destruction is you just can't be complacent as a brewer anymore. You have to be, you have to be on your game yeah. uh, all the time. Uh, okay, a couple other other econ trend or econ forces I wanted to to throw in here. These are a little bit more just sort of spitballing at the wall, uh, but um, one of these things, and you mentioned. Um, uh, alcohol pops is economies of scope. Uh, we've seen this a little bit. What economies of scope are is that it becomes cheaper to produce one product the more you make of a related product. And I, for my students, I'll use something like if you're a manufacturer of computer monitors, you might branch into making televisions. And so the more televisions you make, it actually makes 
the process of monitors cheaper because maybe you can buy, I don't know, the glass in bulk or the components and, you know, uh, you can get economies of scale in those productions. Right. So use the same machinery to make the, the equipment, all that stuff. Yeah. I don't know how much it, it matters now, but it's, it's interesting to me as an economist. When we were at Fuller's years ago and they were talking about their party guile brewing, mm-hmm. it made me think of economies of scope when you basically make one big wort and then you use it to make three, four different beers. <clears throat> that sounded like a, an economy of scope. But uh, these days with seltzers coming along, uh, yeah. the next the next wave of they're not really alcohol pops because that's sort of the point right these are these are low sugar right malt beverages yeah right although the function in the marketplace is pretty identical yes. it's it's a it's a way to get alcohol in your system without having the flavor of alcohol and you know it's a uh, it, yes. it fits into this more soda category than the alcohol category it does it does they're just promoting them more as a health conscious alternative i think yes uh but maybe that's you know that might be an example of a scope if you're making malt uh, uh if you're making alcohol from uh from malted grain then uh branching out to these other areas is, is maybe a good idea uh we've seen cider i don't know how much there's economies of scope in, in cider but boston brewing is sort of my my example of trying everything. <laughs> a lot of breweries have gone into cider and it's, it's related. So I think, you know, you're using fermentation tanks. So you got those, you're using a different, you use apple juice instead of wort, but yeah. yeah. So it's just, I just put it out there as it's a, you know, it's an, it's an economic force that's present in the marketplace. And we're seeing some, uh, some examples of, of businesses, especially I think those that are bigger and sort of facing headwinds trying to branch out into different product categories and trying to sort of capture some economies of scope and also some marketplace. Well, and it seems like if you, if you have an economy of a, of a scale, you know, if you're, it doesn't even matter how big it is, but you want to be, you want your brewery to be making as much beer as it can make. And if it's not, then you're, it's the opposite of economies of scale. You're losing money because your brewery is just sitting there. Oh yeah. And so you want, you want that brewery to be making something. And if it's making seltzer, that's better than it just sitting there. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and then, so and then a few other things I would just sort of say, maybe in the mind of the brewer owner of a, of a small craft brewery, other things you have to think about. Uh, one is the existence of complements and substitutes of your beer. So a classic example in Portland is to have a brew pub. So obviously beer and food are complements and they can, uh, help one, one can help sell the other. Uh, now in, in Oregon, Washington, uh, Colorado, California, other states coming along, Massachusetts, uh, you might start thinking more about how beer and cannabis, if they're complements or substitutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that either. No one really knows the answer to that. Uh, it'll be interesting to find out uh, later on. Um, uh, beer and, and uh, other beer. So for example, if you're a brew pub, do you uh, put other people's beer on your on your taps? Mm. Uh, is that is that a, a good thing or are they are they pure substitutes? Are you just uh, cannibalizing your own sales? Right. Um, I just uh, think about that because it, for a while it was a fairly common practice in, in, in when there were fewer breweries in Portland, uh, but I see it less and less now. Um, and then you might think about the variety of beers that you produce. Uh, are you producing beers that sort of are, are complementary and therefore you're getting known for a certain range of beers or do you produce beers that are uh, quite different? Uh, all right, so the two, the two other economic forces or trends that I think brewers need to at least think about or have in their mind are uh, what I would call behavioral economics or the psychology of, of beer drinkers and beer consumers and 
the game theoretic aspects of being a brewery. I don't have answers, but I do have some sort of ideas about things to think about. One is that, um, especially with experience, because we talked about before, consumers uh, engage in what we call heuristics, or basically shortcuts about how they make decisions. So just thinking you make a great beer and it's exceptional and people will figure that out is probably faulty thinking. People make shortcuts and they make decisions based on sort of the image of the bottle itself. We talked about using a cork and cage, the label. We talked about these big bright labels for hazy IPAs. Uh, the price as a signal. Uh, the company, the, the sort of reputation that you establish as a company, I think that's critically important when you're first getting started is think about what your story is. Think about what you're trying to communicate to consumers and have some kind of... Uh, 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 coherent message that you're you're trying to put out there and it sort of it goes across the beer and the labels and the varieties that you decide to make and so on and so forth um so uh, uh so i think that's important as a as a brewer to think about those things and then the second thing as i mentioned is is sort of think about being in a strategic marketplace and this is what we call game theory um uh what kind of strategic interactions are you uh uh, are you faced with and one of the obvious ones is what do you do with trends do you want to sort of go with trends or go against trends and i think there's two um uh sort of competing forces there one you know you want to sort of meet the consumers where they are so maybe i make a bunch of hazy ipas but at the same time do i really stand out if i make a whole bunch of hazy ipas how do i sort of make a name for myself uh and we have two examples i think of companies that have have tried to sort of go against trend um, or at least sort of stand out, sort of create an independent identity in, in, with different levels of success. So we had the Commons Brewery yeah. that was sort of farmhouse style ales, exceptional beer, uh, but still struggled to find an audience. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, another local brewery that um, before the big lagering trend, before craft beer really came around to embracing lagers, they decided to basically have a German-style brewery, Wayfinder I'm talking about, mm -hmm. uh, and really focusing on those uh, those German-Czech-style beers and techniques. Um, and uh, the marketplace sort of found them or moved into their direction. Um, it's hard to know how much was the push and pull, but, uh, but they sort of definitely scored, I think, because now people really enjoy lagers and are looking for them, and, and they're right in the wheelhouse. Right. And it didn't really go in the commons direction. So they took a shot and... And it didn't go in the commons direction, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's difficult in the, in the strategic marketplace. And you could also talk about, as I mentioned, do you, um, are you out there, uh, do you have guest taps in your pub if you're, or in your brew pub or your tap, your tap room? Uh, do you, uh, like a lot of tap rooms now, will have ciders. They don't make ciders, so they bring another cider on. So, you know, thinking about these sort of interactions, are, are they uh, what we call strategic complements or strategic substitutes? Do they, uh, um, uh, do you, are you making decisions that uh, uh, cause the sales of other aspects of your business to go down or, or go up? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so if you decide to be, uh, sort of uh, a trend follower. How do you make a name for yourself? How do you stand out? And if you try to be a trendsetter, how do you get consumers to follow you or to find you? Is there any guidance about, uh, so you 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 did two paths there, trendsetter, mm -hmm. trend follower. Yeah. There's some breweries that try to do both. Uh, is there any guidance about whether that's a good idea or not? Yeah, I well, uh, I, 
I hesitate to say anything I'm doing is giving guidance. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, except just sort of trying to take ideas that I think are interesting from the economics world into brewing and throw them at the wall and see what sticks. But, uh, I mean, ideally, if you could do both, then you're covering all your bases. Um, I just think it's hard as a small uh, startup to, um, to do both successfully. Um, we have seen... Uh, examples, and I think those are examples of people who've had a lot of experience in the industry or starting up a brewery with a whole lot of knowledge and background, and sort of um, uh, can both uh, hit home runs with sort of established styles, and then bring consumers along to different styles. Yeah. Um, so I do think that's a that's a it's a winning combination because then you kind of uh, you know you have insurance a little bit, you're hedging your bets. Um, but I think it's hard if you're if you're a small uh, sort of um, uh, I was gonna say poorly cap, not poorly capitalized, but you know, uh, just just getting started on a shoestring budget, and you're really trying to make a name for yourself. Then, then it's a, a tough decision. Yeah, yeah, you have to kind of pick your shot. It feels like you do, and I think nowadays you're gonna have to be uh, cognizant that you know it's not like 10, 15 years ago where the success rate is ninety five percent. You know, there's a good chance that you might not succeed. Yeah. Just like a, in a restaurant, you know, you find an omelet, you don't. Uh, it makes it brutal. There isn't one interesting thing, though, I think that um, I'm not sure if this is true, but my guess is that with all of these new breweries, there's been a whole lot of new brewing equipment made right. and out there in the marketplace. And with this churn, if this creative destruction uh, continues and we have this, a churn rate, by the way, is what we call sort of the, the, the new startup firms and the exiting firms, how much... Uh, how much that happens. So, for example, in, in in a year, how many breweries close and how many breweries open is, is what we call it, the churn rate. So with this churn, there might be this sort of established set of equipment that just kind of gets shuttled around from one one experiment to the next. Yeah. Um, and so what I mean by that is you might not have quite as much a capital uh, investment you need up front. Um, and you can afford, in other words, to maybe take a risk and and see what what works and that's exciting for consumers right so if that's becomes kind of the the ethos well i'm going to take a risk i'm going to start a brewery and i'm going to focus on these kinds of beers uh that leads to many pretty exciting things in the marketplace so looking at with your economist eye at the at what's happened in portland over the last year does that look like an anomaly a warning or business as usual it's hard to say i think right now we're still seeing a bit of the shakeup from sort of legacy breweries what i think we'll end up getting to is a point where breweries that are only five years old i mean we're already seeing some of that a little bit but breweries that are only five year old five years old closing and new breweries coming up and and maybe not any more an expansion of the number of breweries but just a lot of churn mm -hmm. so i don't think we've quite reached the mature the, the final the end game i don't know the final stage where i would suggest that we kind of have a steady state number of breweries uh but that there's still a lot of openings and closings each year yeah, I think we're still seeing a bit of a shakeout of of as as craft beer continues to evolve. Right, yeah. and and it seems to me like that's an inevitability because the longer a company is in business, the more likely it is to go out of business for whatever reason, uh, even if there's not a strong market for it. You got owners that yeah. are getting old and yeah. all that stuff. So yeah. we're seeing older businesses go out of business, and that's actually not so shocking to me. Yeah, I do think it's fascinating because. People have estimated the true economies of scale in brewing, and it's something like 250 uh, million barrels of beer a year, or maybe more. Um, uh, it's you know they're huge. The economies of scale are huge, but I do think that there's this new sort of 
I called it Goldilocks zone. Right. This new Goldilocks uh, size for breweries is a lot, lot smaller than it used to be. So, you know, 20 to 30,000 barrels, you're still a pretty significant brewery. You still have pretty significant economies of scale, but you're nimble enough uh, to, uh, you probably have a small enough brew house that you can brew a number of styles and keep and keep uh, uh, rotating those styles sufficiently to keep consumers interested. Well, that all sounds good. Uh, I think we figured it all out. I think the world can look at Portland as a, as a guide for what the future is and listen to you and, and they'll understand completely what, what to do next. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, I do think that other markets in the United States are going to start following the same, uh, the same path. And I think it's an important message for new entrepreneurs to sort of understand the new reality, maybe not plan for the 200,000 barrel uh, brewery in five years, but to think about how to create something that's nimble, strikes a chord with consumers, you know, allows you to follow your bliss, uh, and, uh, can stay relevant. All right. So there you go. Well, there we go. <laughs> uh, well, I hope that was interesting. That was a pretty deep dive into beer anomics. You know, you think it's not interesting because you swim in this, these waters every day, but the rest of us think it's super fascinating. So. Well, no, actually I do. I think it's, I mean, I love it. That's why I do this, uh, because I think it's a really fascinating industry. I think uh, it's um, it's it's you know obviously a really fascinating industry as a consumer, but it's a really fascinating industry as an academic, just thinking about all the competing forces. And uh, one thing I'll say going out, I guess, is just that uh, I am incredibly impressed. Uh, I have enormous respect for uh, brewers and brewery owners who try to navigate these waters. This is a complex and difficult industry. Uh, and, uh, they're pretty courageous for, for putting themselves out there. So kudos to all of you. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, uh, a few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you to the Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana podcast. You can find them in Hood River, Oregon and at freembeer.com. That's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com. Uh, please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You added Spotify in there. That's pretty good. I know. <laughs> Don't forget to rate us. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to uh, recommend us. What else are you supposed to do? Yeah, all those things. <laughs> show us the love. Uh, um, this helps other listeners find the show. We ha- we love to hear from you, so please send us your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter. We now have a dedicated Twitter that's at beervonapod. And definitely do that. We are, you notice we didn't do a, 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 a mailbag today and, and that's because we had no mail. So get on it. That's folks. terrible. I know. It's Come really, on, people. Y- surely there's some, we're doing something wrong that you can at least castigate us for that. Yeah. And so this is actually a good moment to make an appeal. So all, all the people who are in the industry have some experience with the industry. I've thrown a whole ton of ideas at the wall. I'm sure some of them maybe resonate and some of them are complete uh bs so tell me which ones yeah so give me some feedback like give us some applied knowledge yeah i want to know uh i'm good at theorizing hypothesizing but uh it's the empiric the empiricist in me wants to know yeah absolutely all right so uh uh, jeff blogs at the beervana blog and tweets at beervana and patrick tweets at beeronomics all right uh cheers jeff cheers patrick